haven't, if you're new to Greenville and you haven't gotten to enjoy Fall for Greenville with 20,000 of your closest friends, uh, you should go there and do that this afternoon. You would, you would enjoy it. Your waistline would be better because of it, and, uh, and it would be good. My wife and I, we were talking, since we've had our kids, we've got a nine, well, an eight and a six. Like, we don't even venture downtown into that mess anymore. We love it, and if you know me at all, you know that I love food. Probably, um, it's probably number three in my life of the things that I love, to be honest, but uh, I, can't even, I can't even manage it. It's, it's like a Clemson football game on the streets and uh, with food, so I just can't, can't do it. But we're glad you guys are here. Um, before I get started, we want to pray for uh, a family in our church that had a couple baby girls this week. Um, the Rockwells, Justin and Sarah, on Tuesday, they kind of uh, were rushed to the hospital um, because they had to deliver twins very rapidly. Um, Sarah, uh, she kind of had some, just to, I've asked permission what I can share and what I can't. She kind of had sudden onset preeclampsia, and they were expected to deliver in like two weeks, but the baby said, no, we're going to get out now. And uh, so the doctors said, yes, we agree. Babies need to come out now. Um, they're still in the hospital. Um, Avery was in NICU. For about two days, they moved her up to NICU 2 for about another day, and I think she's in the room now, which is good, so she's out of NICU. Um, so it's Avery and Eleanor. Uh, they weighed like 4'3 and 4'11, somewhere in there, so they're tiny, um, but they're healthy. Uh, I walked in, and I got to go and visit them, and uh, Sarah was like, do you want to hold Eleanor? They're going to call her Ella. I'm like, I don't know, do I? And it was like this little bitty nugget. I mean, tiny, probably the tiniest baby that I've held, but like all the little bitty fingers and the wrinkly little nose making the great baby sounds and everything, but didn't smell like bad baby yet, still smelled like good baby, so that was, that was great. Uh, but Sarah is, she's progressing a little slowly. They've had to give, you know, a pretty good bit of blood to kind of get her back, uh, to get her hemoglobin back up and um, a lot of stuff like that, so we want to pray that they can come home soon. Um, everybody's happy, everybody's healthy, they just, they want to be home. Um, so we're going to, I'll give you guys just a second to pray for them, Justin, Sarah, Eleanor, and Avery. Um, pray for them that God will continue to heal, bring them home, and we'll get to celebrate. And be on the lookout, too, just ahead of time. We'll start a meal train as soon as they get home, because um, Justin's not cooking. Um, I'll just throw that out there. Um, he can do mac and cheese, but at some point, that gets old. And, uh, and pray for Jude, too, like Jude's welcoming two new siblings into the world. He's been an only child for a long time, and now he's got two little baby sisters that he could hold like this. And so it's going to be a lot of fun for him. So if you will, take just a second, Justin, Sarah, Eleanor, Avery, and Jude, pray for them, and then I'll, I'll close this out. God, we thank you that we are uh, called to intercede on behalf of our family, and thank you that we get to do that. Thank you that you're a God that hears the needs of his people. Thank you that you're a God that responds to the needs of your people. Um, and God, thank you that you're Jehovah Rapha, you're, the, you're God the healer. Uh, Father, we ask uh, in the name of Jesus now that uh, you continue to progress Sarah along, getting her back um, to where she feels like she can come home and take care of these babies. God, we thank you that things did not go worse. We thank you that uh, the doctors had the skill um, to intervene at, at just the right time. We thank you that Avery and Eleanor are healthy and growing and thriving. And God, we thank you for the leadership that you're going to provide in that family uh, through Justin. And God, uh, we pray that you just give them peace. Uh, you encourage them through your spirit. Um, God, you allow them to know that, that you uh, have already been before them in this place and that you're going to continue to be with them throughout. Um, God, and we pray for those two little girls now that you would, uh, you would grow in them a life um, that could be spent pursuing you 
and honoring you with their lives, their love, their passions, and all the things that you place in us to glorify you. And God, we pray for Jude. Uh, We pray that he would enjoy being a big brother. I know it's hard to be a big brother to sisters, but I know that he'll be great at it. Uh, I pray for the influence that he will have with them and the love that he will be able to give them. Um, And Father, the fact that those girls will get to see Jesus in him uh, for years to come. We thank you. We ask these things in your name. uh, Amen. So yeah, uh, be encouraging to them, shoot them a text, tell them you're thinking about them, praying for them, and like I said, when, uh, when the time comes, uh, we'll let you know when the food train will start, the meal train, so we'll start taking them food. We are continuing our, our vintage series today, um, trying to figure out after about 14 weeks how to land this plane of telling the whole, you know, as much of the Old Testament story as we can. Juliana, it is good to see you today. By the way, that's, Juliana came all the way from Boston to be here today, so um, make sure you fill her tank up with gas and, and uh, tell her you're good, glad to see her. Um, and so today, we are about 125 years um, past where we finished last week. Uh, last week, we looked um, at Jeremiah speaking to the exiles from Judah, and he told them, he was like, look, Seek the shalom, seek the welfare of the people in Babylon, the place where you're captive. Since that time, Babylon was pretty much overrun by Persia, um, but they pretty much inherited the exiles. The exile technically is over. Um, A lot of people have returned to basically the ruins of Jerusalem and, and to their homes, and some are still just scattered everywhere. And so we find this guy named Nehemiah. Um... The reason Nehemiah lands where it does in the Bible, even though it takes place after Jeremiah, is Nehemiah was not a prophet. Uh, Nehemiah would be a governor. Um, Right now, he's technically a very high-ranking slave, where we're going to pick up today, but he was not a prophet. So I want to start there to say, this guy, he's pretty much just a guy. He's a guy that knows the one true God. He's a guy that's been united with the one true God um, by faith that leads to righteousness or that's accounted as righteousness, very much like Abraham that we talked about in community groups this week, uh, but that's, that's him. Um, and so today we're going to look um, at like the first chapter and part of the second chapter, and, and I would love for you to do this. We're not going to get to cover the rest of this story, but it's an amazing story of rebuilding. There's some beautiful stuff there. We'll get to cover one more story or one more instance in this text before we move on, but um, read the rest of this book this week. Maybe just spend some time reading it, thinking about rebuilding, what it looks like, um, and it's, it's amazing. So I'm going to pray uh, just for this time that we're about to enter into, and then we're going we're gonna to jump in with both feet. God, we love you. We thank you for your word today. Uh, God, I pray that we look at it well, uh, that we think well of you and what you've done and what you've called us to be. And God, that we look well at what it means for us to reach to you, um, what it means for us to, to trust in words that we can convey to you in the form of prayer, in the form of petition, uh, in the form of praise. Um, God, we see the responsibility in that. We see the beauty in that. Um, and God, maybe even we see something uh, that we've never seen today. We see the need for it. Uh, God, I pray that you would speak. I pray that you would deal with us well. And we thank you for your word and what it says to us now. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. So Nehemiah 1.1. We're going to start there. Uh, chapter 1 is going to be on the screen uh, in ESV, which I normally teach from. Chapter 2, we're going to switch to a New Living Translation just because it, it does a really good job making things a little more clear. So chapter 1, verse 1, in the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of, month of Chislev in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the capital, that Han and I, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, uh, who had survived the exile, concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant, or those that were left there in the province who had survived the exile, uh, is in great trouble and shame. 
The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. So this is the place that Nehemiah was taken from, the place that he would consider home. Uh, to give you an idea, he's going to explain this at the end of this chapter, but to go ahead and tell you, Nehemiah is a cupbearer. And what a cupbearer would be uh, in this time, it would probably be about the highest rank that you could achieve as a slave. Um, someone that was not from this place. He had grown through the ranks. We've seen other people that were brought from Israel and placed in captivity do a similar thing, uh, but he's at the top. And so it's more, he's more than a sommelier. A sommelier is like a wine expert, a somebody that comes to your table and says, well, if you're having the duck, I would recommend this. And I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. I'll have unsweet tea. Uh, so I just, I just don't know those things. But he's more than that. He's someone that's trusted to take the wine from a bottle, pour it in the glass or in a chalice, and deliver it to the king. And in that process, he's trusted that no poison enters this because nobody's going to kill him. He's trusted that no impurities come, and he's also trusted that it's going to be good. And so he's reached a pretty high rank as a slave. And so this is the guy, Nehemiah, from Israel, a Jew, um, and now he's in uh, Persian, Persian captivity, so to speak, but he's working directly for the king. And he, he has some brothers come in, some fellow Jews, and he's like, how are things going in Jerusalem? What's things looking like? And they come and they basically just say, look, it's not good. The city's in shambles, the walls are gone, the gates are burned, um, the remnant are those that were left. There's always a remnant in the Old Testament all the way through. The remnant that's left, they're not doing it well. They're not doing very good at all. And so that would almost be like for us being forced out of our hometown, for me, Possum Kingdom. Um, I was never forced out of Possum Kingdom. I kind of left willingly. But imagine that I was forced out and, and some of my buddies, Ricky Bobby and uh, Jim Dale Buford, come and talk to me. They're, those aren't real names. I'm just, well, Ricky Bobby was, amazing movie. But anyway, they come and tell me. They're like, look, Possum Kingdom was burned to the ground. You know, the general store, gone. You know, the worm factory, gone. Anyway, there, none of those things exist there. But it would just be really disheartening and heartbreaking. But for them, it was even more because it wasn't just a hometown. It was like the center of everything that made them a people. It was the place that God said way, way back, I'm promising you this place. It is yours. Go and take it. They went and took it. Again, we talked about last week as a result of the fact that they chased other gods. God said, I'm going to, I'm going to deal with you by, through exile after 70 years. You can come back. That time is now. But they've come back. They found the place, it's not good. Those that were left, they're in shambles. Everything's bad. And so when Nehemiah hears, hears it, here's his response in verse 4. It says, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And so he hears this and rightly so, he's just, he's destroyed. Mourning, we talked about that. Mourning is, is a longing for something that's lost. He misses the Jerusalem of old, the, the center of life, the temple, the place where the very spirit of God was housed, where they could go into one wall and go in through a second wall through a purification and then send a high priest through the third. You know, it was a very special place, and he's mourning that what was lost. And it said that, that he wept, he mourned for days, but then it says this. It says, uh, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So I want to go ahead and throw this out there. Prayer generally ends up in two places for us, okay? Here's the most common place that prayer ends up. Prayer for us most of the time appears when, when we're in a foxhole, so to speak, when things are bad. You know, I don't know if any of you remember showing up to biology in college and not looking at the syllabus, and you walk in the door, and they're like, pull out your Scantron, it's time for an exam. And you're like, oh, Lord in heaven. You know, foxhole prayers, those kinds of things. But then literal foxholes, like men in battle, they say there are no such thing as an, no such thing as an atheist in a foxhole. Most of the time when we're at the pit, when, things are, when we're being shelled from all around, people are going to naturally pray. 
They're going to naturally pray. They're going to reach out. Even the atheist is going to say, I don't know if this is going to work, but hey, God. You know, that's a lot of times where we find prayer. But here's the other place that I think uh, that we're going to naturally find prayer too. In the midst of not just turmoil and chaos, but in the midst of mourning. In the midst of times of like intense loss and grief. When like deep down, we don't really have the words We don't know what to ask for. We don't even know how to ask for them. But something in us just wants to cry out. Just throw our hands up and cry out. Here's Nehemiah. He's at that place. But here's the other thing that Nehemiah understands too. That yes, while we pray in mourning, when we reach out because we're in desperate need, we're at the end of ourselves he also understood the third space for prayer. And the third space for prayer is the place that precedes any big work of God. Hear me. Huge. Foxhole? Yeah. Place of mourning? Loss? Yes. But number three is a place that precedes any major movement of God. Any major movement of God. I think number three is the place we miss. Number three is the, is the place that... Maybe it's the place we're afraid to be. Maybe it's the place that our weakened faith um, doesn't allow us to be. Uh, or or maybe, maybe it's the place that we've never told we need to be. And, and I'll say it today. Any major work of God must happen after it has been prayed over like crazy. And so Nehemiah is in this place of mourning. Uh, He's at a loss. It says that he weeps, he fasts, but then he enters into this this other spirit, that third space. And here here he goes. Verse 5. It says, And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that now pray that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants. We're going to pause right there. So the first thing that we want to look at, now I don't want to make this like a, a prescriptive type prayer deal, but I want us to look at the things that Nehemiah is doing in this third space of prayer, this place of prayer in which he knows that a, a work of God needs to occur. Uh, he's entering into this spirit of prayer beforehand. I want us to look at the parts. The first thing that he does is, um, is kind of like this, this spirit of, of praise and identifying exactly who he's praying to. And I know that sounds trite and cliche, but he's like, you are the God of heaven. You are the only God. Uh, you, are, you are that. Like if we flash forward to the Lord's Prayer, when Jesus says, when you pray, pray like this, it's the very first thing he teaches his disciples too. It's the very first thing. He says, when you pray, pray like this, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed, holy, separate be your name. You know, and right here, Nehemiah, he knows that preceding any major work of God, he has to spend time like in prayer, and we're going to talk about the amount of that time, but he just, he says, he says, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Not only is he identifying God by calling him who he is and where he is, he's also talking about the characteristics that make him so amazing. 
Not that just he's holy, not that just he's separate, not that just he resides in heaven, but he says, O oh Lord God, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant, who is faithful, who is and his steadfast love, that Hesed love, that covenant love that we've talked about already um, with those who love him and keep his commandments. So he's like, um, before I ask anything, before I say anything, God, you're great. And it's almost like this, this place of confessing that God is great. There's something about us that needs to say, God, you're better. You're good. You are exactly who you've said you are. You've done great things. You're, you're God. Uh, I think that reveals a, uh, man, it reveals a place of humility in our prayers. It, it reveals a position that we must take when we pray. It reveals so much about ourselves just to say that, that God, before I ask of anything, before I say anything else, I have to tell you you're good. You're good. You're beyond compare. And you're faithful. You're faithful. And he's not saying anything about God that's, that's untrue. And so he goes on a little bit further. He says, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants. And so the other thing that we're going to talk about, like right here, uh, it's twice now that it's talked about the longevity or the lasting nature of these prayers. The very first thing is that it says, uh, I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven, mourned for several days. Now he's saying, God, I am praying day and night. I'm not just praying it once. I'm not just praying it at a weekly prayer gathering. I'm not just praying it on Sunday morning. No, no, no. I'm doing it day and night. I'm doing it repeatedly. I am entreating you, God. Hear me, God of heaven, righteous, holy, perfect perfect God whose hesed love covers all things. God, I'm doing it a lot. Day and night, I'm reaching out. Hear me. Hear me. Open your ears. Open your eyes. Hear me. See what I'm asking for repeatedly. I think the other thing that we, we often think about prayer too is I already said that. I don't need to say it again, but we, we flash forward to the persistent widow in the New Testament, this, this idea of someone that was just repeatingly over and over going after something, God says that's the way that we pray. He says pray nonstop, pray continually. Here, Nehemiah is exemplifying that. And so he says, hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night, and I pray it for the people of Israel, your servants. And then he, he goes into this mode. He says, confessing the sins of the people of Israel which have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept your commandments, the statutes, the rules that you commanded your servant, Moses. And so after saying, God, you're worthy, you're great, your hesed love is so impressive and is so amazing, God, I'm praying continually, then he says this. He's like, um, I'm humble enough to admit that I'm a sinner. Remember a couple weeks ago when we talked about David and his confession uh, over the sin that he had committed, the very first thing that we see in Psalm 51 is he was praying for something he knew he did not deserve, like seeking forgiveness. He was praying for something, asking for something that he knew by comparison to a holy, holy God and the way that he had transgressed, he didn't deserve forgiveness. But he was asking for it because he knew about God's hesed, his steadfast love, his faithfulness, his love, his mercy, all of those things. Here, same idea, like this is revealing this idea of, uh, God, I'm crying out to a holy, perfect God who has all things in his hands, but I have to admit before I go any further that I'm a broken man, that I'm, I'm sinful. And he doesn't just say, and woe is me, I'm sinned. No, no, no. He actually calls them out. He's like, yes, I live in the midst of people have sinned, but I myself, I have sinned, and here's what I've done. Bam, bam, bam. He lists them. He says, even I and my father's house, my family, we have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept your commandments and statutes and the rules that you commanded your servant, Moses. 
he confesses his sins, he's, he's specific, he's personal. Um, and, and I think that there's this interesting uh, progression. Humility came before his confession, but humility is also the result of his confession. I'll say it again because this is, this is huge. In order to confess, there had to be humility there already. To see God is that much better, that much higher. All of those things, humility preceded his confession, and it was also the result of his confession. Uh, like I remember, man, and I've probably done it too, but just like the, the flippant prayers that we often just kind of toss at God kind of a thing. Hey, God, and if you will, just kind of do this or do this. But in this place, man, Nehemiah is like, God, somewhere in me, I have to admit that I'm probably not worthy to be talking to you. I, I shouldn't be allowed. But because of this, this hesed love, this, this mercy that you've displayed, I know that I can come to you. Humility starts, uh, confession is next, and then it ends with humility too. And he's like, thank you for hearing. Thank you for hearing. And so then he, he goes into the next phase of his prayer. He says, verse 8, He says, remember the word that you commanded to your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. Uh, Man, I talked about it a couple weeks ago. Like I understand that prayer is confusing. Like I do, because if we, if we strive to think theologically, we, we see that God is in control. The biblical word we would use is sovereign. Like, it doesn't mean that he controls every detail, but he's in control of the outcome. Um, and so we start to think, if, if that is the case, what is my prayer going to do? Like, that's our, that's our, open, that's our open dialogue of like, if God already knows what's going to happen, if he is in control, what does my prayer do? Man, this, this passage... He says, mm. and he's referencing back to Deuteronomy 4 uh, when Moses was talking to the people. But he says, remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. Nehemiah is saying, God, I am asking for what you have already said that we can have. Here's the thing. Prayer is not changing God's mind. Prayer is not redirecting the Almighty. No, no, no. Hear me. (laughs) Prayer is my vocalization that, God, I am unified with your desires. I am unified with your desires. Prayer is us openly confessing, God, I want what you want. But here's the thing. In order to be effective people that pray, we have to know what God wants. Like if if my prayers are saying, hey God, I am aligned with your will. I am asking for what you have already said I can have, what you have already said, the place that you've already said that I am going. There's no way that we can effectively pray that unless we've spent time actually asking the question, God, where do you want me to go? What do you want me to do? Who do you want me to be? And do you know what that requires on our part? It requires effort. 
Remember, we've talked about passive and active sanctification. Passive active sanctification is the work that God is doing in me, like behind my scenes that I can't even explain. He's making me more like Jesus, but the active role of my sanctification that God has entreated me into is, is I need to work out my salvation with fear and trembling, in the words of Paul. I need to strive for him. I need to seek what he wants from me. I need to ask him, hey, God, what do you want from me today? And then after he tells us, say, God, I agree with you, and now I'm asking for it. Like all of the things that we talk about, like we, we, we look at the, the welfare of our city. We pray that we will have favor going out into our city. Do you know why we pray that? Because God desires that before we've ever asked. Do you know why I petition God daily for the salvation of my daughter? Because God wants it more than I do. When I petition God for those that I know that are in my circle that do not yet know him, why I ask God for their salvation because he wants it before I ever did. And now I am asking him in agreement with him, God grant this, make this happen. When he's saying, remember the things that you've told Moses, that's not a question to God. He's not saying, do you remember when you said this to him? No, it is his uh, active conveyance that he remembers what God told Moses. He remembers it being passed down from generation to generation in oral tradition, remembering that Moses was said, if you are disobedient, I will scatter you, but if you are obedient, I will gather you. He says, God, I want that. I want that. Prayer is our declaration that, God, I agree with you, and I want what you want. The plans that you have, I want those. The decrees that you've made, I want those. The desires of your heart, your passions, your love, and your plans, I agree with them, and I want them too. You know why the prayers of a righteous man are powerful? Because they started with God, and they've ended up on our heart. He says, remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples, but if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, they're scattered everywhere. From there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. He said, God, I want that. I want that. Our prayers decree that, God, I agree with you. I want what you want. But I know that I can't actively entreat God for what he wants in my life unless I know what that is. And so for me, I find that here. I find that here when it agrees with here. I find it here when it agrees with here. But it starts and ends here. Because the other thing, God will never place a desire in us to seek after if it contradicts himself. Ever. Will not happen. And then he says again in verse 11, he says, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight and fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. After saying, God, I want what you want, he says, now God, I'm going to go after it. Grant me success and grant me favor of this man, the king, whom I work for. Because he says, now I was a cupbearer for the king. He says, God, I want what you want. Grant me success and give me favor. Before any mighty work of God, before any big movement of God, there has to be a prayer of, 
us uniting with the will of God, saying, God, I want what you want. Grant us success and grant us favor. Like this city, this city will not be changed for the glory of God without the favor of God going before us. It won't happen. It won't happen unless we find favor with people that will open doors and let us in. It will not happen with our neighbors unless we find na- favor with our neighbors who will open the door and let us in. It will, not find fa- it will not happen with our kids if we do not find favor with our children by dealing with them well and loving them like Jesus unless God has granted that favor for us to go in and the gospel to grow and thrive there. It will not happen. God, grant me success. Grant me favor. Pop-up chapter 2. chapter 2, this is, this is big, about four months have passed. Around about four months have passed since chapter 1 and chapter 2. It gives us, uh, in, uh, it talks about in the month of, of Chislev or Chislau, uh, that would be um, late fall. And then we go to the very next, and it says in the month of Nisan, that would have been like early spring. So about four months have passed. Here's what we can assume too, and I know we, we should never assume, but based on the, the wording that Nehemiah has already used. He says day and night. Uh, he talks about the longevity of his prayers several times. Uh, he, he entreats God to hear him. He's imploring him, please hear me. Please take notice. I tend to think that for four months, those words didn't stop. I tend to think that for four months until chapter two, I don't think those prayers ceased. I think probably day and night continued saying, God, I want what you want. Grant me success. Grant me favor. I'm humble enough to ask of someone who wants it more than I do, God, hear me. So it says that early in the following spring, in the month of Nisan, during the 20th year of King Antaxerxes' reign, I was serving the king his wine. I had never before appeared sad in his presence. So the king asked me, he said, why are you looking so sad? You don't look sick to me, but you must be deeply troubled Pause, then I was terrified. Because even though, even though Nehemiah had bathed this in prayer, even though he had been asking God for favor and for success, he knew right here what had just happened was the door that he had been asking to be flung open. God was flinging it open. And he openly confesses in that moment, and he's like, when he said that, I was scared to death. I was scared to death. This would be like the rubber meets the road kind of a thing. Faith is not the absence of fear. Faith is the fact that we act even though there is fear because we've asked God to go before us to grant us favor. He says, then I was terrified because the king just said, you must be deeply troubled. Verse 3. But I replied, long live the king. King, you're great. Thank you. But how can I not be sad? For the city where my ancestors are buried is in ruins and the gates have been destroyed by fire. The king asks, well, how can I help you? <laughs> like, he doesn't even ask a question. Like, Nehemiah doesn't even say, I need something from you, king. The king looks at him. He says, man, something's not right. Your face, different. It normally goes like this. Today, it's going like this. I don't get it. You're not sick. You're not throwing up. I don't hear the bubble gut. I don't hear any of that. So something must be wrong. What is it? And he says, king, how can I not be sad? My home is destroyed. Everything is gone. And of course, yes, I'm downtrodden, I'm saddened, and the king just says, well, how can I help you? And in that moment, everything that Nehemiah had learned, he hadn't forgot, because he says, then with a prayer to God of heaven, then he opens his mouth. He says, I replied, 
If it please the king, and if you are pleased with me, your servant, send me to Judah to rebuild the city where my ancestors are buried. The king and the queen sitting beside him asked, how long will you be gone? When will you return? After I told him how long I'd be gone, the king agreed to my request. I also said to the king, <laughs> so the king had just said, you may go. You may go. Good job. But then he, he remembered this. Like, I think he remembered the fact he had already been praying big, bold prayers by saying, hey, God, I agree with you. I want everything that you want. I know that it's huge. I know that it's big. But, God, I'm asking of a really big God, and I'm doing it day in, day out, over and over and over, potentially for four months long. The big asks had already been made, but even though the king was addressing him, his, his master right now, he was scared to death. But then he says, I need to go. He says, how long will you be gone? He told him how long he's going to be gone. He said, okay, you may go. And then he says, but I, I need something else. I think true boldness comes only after we've prayed with boldness. Like true boldness for the things that we have asked for in the people's presence that we want favor and that we want success, it's a result of praying with boldness. That boldness must come first. He says, I also said to the king, if it please the king, let me have letters addressed to the governors of the province west of the Euphrates River instructing them to let me travel safely through their territories on my way to Judah. He said, I need a letter of safe passage. I'm a Jew traveling through these places. They may not like me very much, but they'll trust you. Can I have a letter with you know, like your seal on it to keep me safe? He's not done. He said, and, and please give me a letter addressed to Asaph, the manager of the king's forest, instructing him to give me timber. I will need to make uh, beams for the gates of the temple fortress, for the city walls, for a house for myself. And the king granted these requests because, woof, Paul's dramatically He says, and the king granted these requests because the gracious hand of God was on me. He said, king, I need to go. He said, okay, how long? Twelve years was the number, by the way. He said, I need to go. Twelve years. Okay. You may go, oh, but I've already been praying boldly, so I'm going to ask for this. I also need safe passage through places where they're going to fear you, but they're not going to fear me. And by the way, king, all those trees that you have in your forest... Yeah, I need those too. Okay. Because the gracious hand of God was on me. Every major work is preceded by prayers and entreating God by saying, God, I agree with you. I want what you want. But here's the other thing. Every major work of God is preceded by the power of God. And that's what we're asking for. We're not asking for some magic enchantment. We're not asking for some uh, special tattoo. We're not asking for any of that. No, no, no. We're literally asking for the power of God to be on display through the people of God so that all the world may worship the power and the might and the majesty of God. The power of God to be on the people of God so that all people may worship the power, might, and majesty of God. These are no small asks. These are big asks. But God expects us to ask them. He wants us to ask them. He's already said, look, all of the authority, the dunamis that has been placed on me, in Jesus' words, not mine, he said, I'm giving to you. So that you may have authority and may have power. According to the new covenant, the very spirit of the living God lives in me. That power constrained meekness, it's in me. Like power to just take it all, do it all. But in order for that to happen, we need to know the will of God. We need to seek the will of God, agree with the will of God, and then just say, God, 
grant me the will of God. Prayer's not nearly as complicated as I think that we've convoluted it to be. Prayer is just an open confession. God, you're right, and I want that. Grant me that for your glory, your benefit, your power, all of that. So here's the challenge like today. We're the places that we're praying our will instead of God's. Do we see the difference? And what do we need to do about it? We're the places that we're praying our will instead of God's. Do we see the difference? And what do we need to do about it? Maybe you're praying your will for your job, but you haven't asked God, God, what do you want? Maybe you're praying your will for your family because you haven't stopped to ask God what he wants. Maybe you're praying your will for your neighbors because you haven't stopped to ask God what he wants. Whatever it may be, before the next time you sit down to pray, maybe say, hey God, before I utter a word, let me tell you that you're great. You're the God above all. I trust your goodness. I value your goodness. I want your goodness. And then before you say another word, remember, he's up there. We're down here. We shouldn't be able to address him, but he says, yes, you can. Let it breed a spirit of humility and further our humility. And then in that place, begin to say, God, if this is what you want, this is what I want. And maybe before, maybe before we even say that, we just before we ask for anything, for day and night, repeatedly, through fasting and prayer, which we're going to talk about in the coming weeks, maybe, maybe we just stop before we ask for anything. We just say, God... I just need to know what you want, and I want to agree with you on that. Maybe you have to admit that there's a deficiency in you because you haven't spent time actually getting to know the will of God on paper that we can hold and hide in our hearts. Maybe you need to ask for help. Maybe you just, just need to openly say, you know what, I don't know what I'm doing here. I need help. Guess what? We'll help you. We have people uh, that are willing, people that maybe are just a little bit further down the road in their journey with Jesus than you are, and they would be glad just to say, hey, this is what it means to me. This is what God's shown me. Maybe he can show you too. We call that discipleship. God, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your provision. And God, we thank you that your will has preceded ours, that your plans have preceded ours. God, I pray for uh, this faith family, God, that we can learn to say, God, I agree with you, and that's what I want. I want what you want. But God, for that to happen, I know that you must move in us uh, to push us to seek your will, to seek your desires, to seek your passions, your plans, and your pursuits. And so, God, I pray that we could do that. I pray that we could do it as a family. I pray that we would do it individually. And God, as a result, I pray for favor in this city. I pray for favor in our communities. I pray for favor in our homes. And God, I pray for success for your plans and not ours. And God, when we get to the end of it, when we see you provide, when we see you move, we can say it happened because your hand was on it. Thank you, God, for loving us. Thank you, God, for hearing your children and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.